theyeshiva.net. Tonight, we want to address another fundamental and complex component of Emunah, Jewish faith, which, in one word, could be defined or summarized as in response to the question, who gave the rabbis all their power? Now, last week, in Basics of Emunah 6, we discussed the fundamental idea of Yiddishkeit embracing the experience which we call Maimed Harsinai, the moment that Hashem reveals Himself to the entire nation, appoints Moshe as His prophet, and gives them the Ten Commandments. To summarize last week's shir, the best is the words of the Rambam. If you'll open up your first source, Rambam Hilchis Yisoyde HaToyre Perek Ches, the Rambam in his Mishnah Torah, the laws of the fundamentals of Torah, chapter 8, I quote, Moshe Rabbeinu says the Rambam, Jews did not believe Moshe because of the miracles he did. Anybody who believes in anybody or anything based on miracles, there is always doubt in his heart. People can perform optical illusions. People can perform black magic, witchcraft, all types of tricks. And therefore, there's always a question if it's true. To base your entire definition of truth on a miracle is shaky. So why did they accept Moshe? Accept him as what? As God's prophet. B'maimed har Sinai, one experience, standing at Mount Sinai. Our own eyes observed it, and no stranger. We didn't hear it from anybody else. We didn't, we didn't hear a vision from somebody else. Our own eye, our own ears heard, not from somebody else. Everything that was there, the words, the fire, the voice, the lightning. Moshe approaches the cloud. The voice speaks to him. We, who's we? We is three and a half million Jews, men, women, and children here. Moshe, 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 go tell them so and so. This is what Moshe tells the Jews. God spoke to you face to face. He also says, This wasn't a covenant with your grandfathers. You were all there. It was face to face. I was not the one who was responsible for this religion. I am a witness to the truth of Judaism as much as you are a witness. You heard me being appointed. It was direct revelation. And as we explained, there's no other religion in the history of humanity that makes such a claim, and there's good reason. Why not? Because it's extremely, whenever you want to authenticate the religion, you have to ask one question, authenticate anything. How easy was it to make it up? Anybody says something. How easy was it for a charlatan or for a delusional human being to make it up? And if it's pretty easy, you got to doubt it. 
especially if it's revolutionary. In other words, if all it takes is for me to spend a month in a cave and then come out and say, God spoke to Rabbi Y.Y., you got to doubt it. To make up Judaism would have been a hard job. <laughs> a very hard job. you got to convince many millions of people to conspire on a truth that would change their history forever and make it more difficult, not make it more easy, as discussed at length. And you can watch it or listen to it at theyeshiva.net, last week's class, Emuna number 6 with the sources. That was, in our summation, what we explored last week. Now we go over to the next topic, and this is not the Torah, in other words, not the written tradition, not the text of the Torah, that all the Jewish people embraced as authentic. Because they knew Moshe was a real prophet from Maimed Har Sinai, and Moshe gives them this Torah with 613 mitzvahs. Now we go to the majority, maybe most of Judaism, much of Judaism, the oral tradition. I quote... This is Abbasco. <laughs> this is a Maimed Harsinai. What's going on? Okay. So here I received quite a few questions on the topic. Here is uh, a few of the emails. Who gave, Rabbi Jacobson, who gave, could you address the question, who gave the rabbis all the power? I am burnt out by the system. <laughs> That's funny. A rabbi gets into a mood and he says, this is the law and I have to listen to him. The reform changed the law. The orthodox didn't change the law. Be honest, rabbi. It says anywhere in the Torah that you have to wear a kippah. It says that you have to wear a jacket by davening. It says that you're not allowed to drive on Shabbos. The reform did what they felt was right to change Judaism with the ages. We do the same thing. Every year we add a new mitzvah or a new chumrah, a new stringency. Best proof. Look how many arguments there are among rabbis. How can they all be the word of God? They're always arguing with each other. To me it seems this is a joke. Okay. (laughs) Interesting question. And similar questions from dear friends. Of, uh, about this topic. Now, I turn to this, uh, question, to this person who questioned it, whether he's sitting here or watching it uh, live uh, somewhere in the globe. I don't, know who, I don't know who it is. He signed his first name, but not his last name. When, when there is pain involved, it's very hard to listen objectively. What I ask of you is, to listen to tonight's lecture with an open mind. doesn't mean you have to agree with everything. It just means listen to it. Listen to it uh, without an agenda, without a bias. And uh, maybe some things could make a little, a little more sense. My mission here tonight is not to defend anybody, trust me. <laughs> or to defend any particular person, or any particular organization, or any particular movement, or any particular group or sect. That's not my agenda. My agenda is, I believe that many of us are clueless as to the system of Judaism. How Judaism works from Sinai to cyberspace. From 3,300 years ago till this very night as we stand here. Even if there are questions, at least I think we can develop a little more understanding and a little more respect. And realize, to say it in simple Yiddish, there's no hefkedus in the system of Judaism. The system of Judaism of Torah is extremely meticulous. 
extremely precise, extremely serious. And I would say, I have a hard time finding the level of intellectual honesty and integrity anywhere in the world. Does this mean every person lives up to this intellectual honesty and integrity? One of the saddest things I always tell my students, and I always say it's sad, is you can't confuse Jews with Judaism. I wish you would be able to confuse Jews with Judaism. Unfortunately, you can't always. Some Jews you could confuse with Judaism. Some you cannot. We each have various drives, various conflicts, various agendas. But there is a very serious and respectable and logical system. Let me emphasize one more thing. It's one of the most beautiful things the Rambam writes in Hilchas Talmud Torah. He says, in Judaism there have been three crowns. The crown of royalty, the crown of priesthood, and one more crown. The crown of royalty was given to a particular tribe, a particular family, the family of David, the dynasty of David HaMelech. The crown, the, the crown of priesthood, Keser Kohuna, was given to a particular family, the family and lineage of Aaron HaKoyim. Till today, Koyanim Levim, Shevet Levi, the tribe of Levi, particularly the family of Aaron, that's the family of Kohuna. Then he says there's a third crown. Third crown is Keser Ter, the crown of Tere, he says... It's Hefker. It's ownerless. There's no class system. There's no nepotism. There's no wealth. This is the ultimate democratizer. Did I just make up a word? Okay. This is the ultimate equalizer. <laughs> the ultimate equalizer in Judaism. There's nobody above the law. And there's nobody you can say you're not entitled to know. It's one of the great ideas of Judaism. There's no secret that rabbis know, judges know. Certain people know this is a secret. It's in the family. It's in the hierarchy. There's no hierarchy. Information is open. Maimon Arsina didn't happen for a few families. It didn't happen in one neighborhood. If Maimon Arsina would have happened in Menebrak, so they, that says in Galkut Shemoni, the reason it was given in a desert is because nobody owns the real estate there. Matan Torah would have happened in Bnei Brak. The people in Bnei Brak would say, we have a monopoly on Torah. If it would have happened in Crown Heights, the people in Crown Heights would say that if it would happen in Lakewood, the people in Lakewood would say it, and Muncie, Williamsburg, Borough Park, Mayor Sha'arim, and so forth. Kalvachayma, even now some of them say that the Torah was given here. Certainly if the Torah would have really been given there. It was in a desert. Everyone was there. Everybody was there. Children, women, men, senior citizens, minors. And everything is recorded. Why? It's open information. Study it. Analyze it. Dissect it. There's no secret conspiracy theories. We don't believe in conspiracy. We don't believe in conspiracy theories. I mean, we believe in conspiracy theories. But Torah didn't want, want to allow itself to be subjected to conspiracy theories. Now, I don't want to give cute answers like sometimes people like giving. I want to give serious and comprehensive answers. And for this, it's important to give the full picture. Tonight's class is going to be based on many sources, primarily three works of the Rambam. And just, I always like to give context. When we talk about the Rambam, the Rambam is Rabbeinu Moshe ben Maimon. In English, he's known as Maimonides. He was born in the year 1135. And he passed away in the year 1205. He lived for 70 years. He was born in Spain, in Cordovero, and he passed away in Egypt. Adchav Tevis, as you know, he's interred in the city of Tiberia. The Rambam wrote a fabulous, fabulous introduction to Mishnayis. 
It's really a, an obligation for any serious student of, of Torah Shabal Pet to read the Rambam's introduction because he gives the full picture. We start learning Mishnayis, Masech Tebrochis, Me'emosai, Koyer Neshma, where, what, when, how, what is this book, what is, what is its genre, what is its mission statement, who wrote it, why did he write it, what is its structure, what is its message, what is its goal. The Rambam gives and writes a long, very long introduction to the Mishnah, excerpts of which I'm going to discuss tonight. The Rambam wrote another book, he wrote a commentary on Mishnayis, and this is his introduction. The Rambam wrote another book, everybody knows, called Mishnah Torah Yad the first categorized halachic code of Judaism. One of the greatest, greatest works ever written in Yiddishkeit till today. It's uh, one of the most frequent studies works in, in halacha in Yiddishkeit called Yad HaChazaka, and he has an introduction there, a critical introduction. And the third is, in his book of Mishnah Torah, the Rambam has Hilchis Mamrim, which means the laws of those who betray the courts, and there too, the first two chapters, he explores this as length, as well as Hilchus Sanhedrin. The fundamental truth that we want to examine tonight is that it's impossible to understand Judaism in a serious way if we don't understand there's not one Torah, there's two Torahs. There's Torah Shebiksav and Torah Shebaalpeh, the oral Torah and the written Torah. What is the written Torah? That's clear, Chamisha Chumsha Torah, which according to the Jewish Amunah were dictated to Moses by the creator of the world, word for word, and therefore it is the ultimate authoritative document for the Jew and for the world. This is the Jewish perspective. This is last week's class, Amunah number six. What is Torah Shabbat? What is the oral tradition? Here is where much of the confusion sets in. What is this creature we call Torah Shabbat? There are five different aspects of Torah Shabbat. Not one, but five. Number one, the oral explanation of the text. Number two, oral traditions not found in the text. We call them halacha l'moysha misinai. These were both received from Moshe. Number one, the oral commentary of the text. Number one, oral laws that are not found in the text. Number three, there's another element of Torah Shabalpa. And this is... Not revealed, but it's not received, not revealed, but derived. Applying the text to new laws or new situations. That's number three. Number four, legislation of later generations. Number five, minhagim, customs. So again, commentary of the text that's not written. It's commentary, oral commentary. Number two, oral traditions not in the text. These are received by Moshe. Number three, application of the text, new law, deriving new laws, applying it to new situations that are not addressed directly in the text or in the oral commentary. Number four, legislation, which means new edicts or prohibitions, Xeris, Takanas will discuss, that are added in later generations. And number five is what we call today minhagim, customs, traditions that are not legislated. They are like the word expresses their customs, their menhagim. Let's begin with the first element of what is Torah Shabalpa, the oral commentary of the text. Every single mitzvah of the 630 mitzvahs recorded in the Torah, in fact, every component of the, of the five books of the Torah, the mitzvahs and all, all the other texts, Hashem gave to Moshe not only the words, not only the text, but also 
a commentary, an explanation. In fact, this does not need faith. We don't need faith for this. If you take the text seriously, in other words, if you accept Maimed Arsina, and Moshe's text is serious as God's word, you must assume that it came with a package. It came with an oral commentary. For starters, there's no Nikudas. There's no vowels in the Sefer Torah. If there's no vowels in the Sefer Torah, so then I don't even know how to pronounce many of the words. So when it says in Parshas Mishpatim, Loi Sevashel Gdi, how do you say further? Bachalevimoy, right? Maybe it's Bechalevimoy. You're not allowed to cook a goat in the fat of its mother. Who told you it's Bachalevimoy? We take it for granted. Somebody had to say this. The text can't give it to you. There's many, many situations like this. Right? How do you pronounce? You have it even in English. Perfect or perfect. Contest or contest. Right? Over there, at least, you have the context to tell you what it means. But in Torah, you don't have that. That's problem number one. Problem number two is, you don't have psikim. You don't have any separations. You don't have a comma. You don't have a colon. You don't have a dash. And that can make a big difference. You know the old anecdote, right, in English. Listen to this sentence, okay? Woman without her man is nothing. Woman without her man is nothing, right? But you may choose to read it very differently. Woman, exclamation point. Without her, man is nothing. (laughs) Who's right? (laughs) Of course, the second one. And what do you say? Okay. You don't have to answer if you know it's good for you. You don't know where the end of a posik is. You don't know where a posik ends. You don't know where you don't know where a verse ends. There's no separation. That's number one. The most important thing, however, is it's impossible to understand, to decipher much of the text. There's 613 mitzvahs. There's almost not a single mitzvah that you can figure out what to do and how to do it without an oral interpretation. For example, every Jew in the world knows what do we do on Yom Kippur? What do we do on Yom Kippur? We fast. Where does it say in Chumash you should fast on Yom Kippur? Where does it say? What does mean? You should afflict your soul. How do you know it means to fast? Maybe it means you should take a whip and whip yourself. Maybe it means you should go to the gym for a few hours. How do you know it means to fast? Maybe it means you should do push-ups. Maybe it means you should listen to the rabbi's sermon. <laughs> That may be a bigger Right? So we all know it's a mitzvah to fast in Yom Kippur. It doesn't say. It says to afflict your soul. What's the mitzvah to do on Rosh Hashanah? What do we do on Rosh Hashanah? To blow the shofar. Where does that say? Where does that say? What does it say? It says to blow the shofar. It doesn't say anywhere. Look in the whole Chumash. It doesn't say once. What does it say about Rosh Hashanah? Yom Trua Yilachem. What does Trua mean? So look in the Aramaic translation. Yevava. You know what a Yevava means? A krecht, a sigh. So I say Rosh Hashanah, we should get up and go, oi. Right, there's three women who meet in Palm Beach in Florida one afternoon. And one says, oi. And the other one says, oi vey. And the other one says, oi vey is miri And the fourth one says, we made up not to talk about the kids today. 
So Rosh Hashanah, we should get up and go, oi, 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 oi. Well, we do that anyway. Not only Rosh Hashanah, every day. They say in a kosher restaurant, the waiter goes around and asks at every table, is anything all right? <laughs> but we don't do that on Rosh Hashanah. We blow the shoifer. Why? How do you know to blow? And how do you know a shoifer, a ram's horn? Maybe a trumpet? Maybe a violin? A shoifer? And which sounds? So I don't know what to do on Rosh Hashanah. Yom Trua, thank you, God, I really appreciate it. Moshe, thank you. Yom Trua, afflict your souls. I don't know what to do with it. By Yom one of the biggest Jewish mitzvahs, most Jews still do it, is bris milah. By Yom Hashmini, yim opsar You have to cut the skin of the arla, the foreskin. What does that mean? And here you don't want to play games. Maybe it means to cut off his nose, part of his nose. I don't know. It says bris, circumcise. Psar or So we take it, what do you mean? Everybody knows what the arla is. Arla means skin. Skin that's covering. Then it says, of course, you should write it on your hand and put it as a sign between your eyes. What does that mean? What do I do? What do I tie on my hand? What do I put between my eyes? It says you should write it on the doorposts of your house. So I'll take a pen, go to the doorpost of my house, and write Shema Yisrael on the doorpost. That's not mezuzah. I don't know what to do. Then it says, on Shabbos, on the seventh day, don't leave your place. What does that mean, don't leave your place? Rabbi Levi says this in the Kuzri. Does it mean I'm not allowed to get up from my chair? Does it mean I'm not allowed to walk out of my room? Does it mean I'm not allowed to walk out of the house? Not allowed to walk out of the neighborhood. Not allowed to walk out. What does it mean? You're not telling me anything. Don't leave your place. What does your place mean? Does it mean Muncie? Does it mean New York? Does it mean United States of America? Does it mean the planet? What does it mean? Parshas Re'eh, he says, if you want to eat meat, you have to slaughter the animal. I told you how to slaughter the... How do you slaughter an animal? You have to... Thank you, Moshe. Thank you, God. You should slaughter. What does that mean? Say, we all know what shechit is. Really, how do we know what shechit is? And there it's actually very interesting. You have it in your sources, the second source, Parshish Rei Perikid Beis. If you're far away from the Holy Temple and you want to eat, so then slaughter from your cattle and from your flock which God has given you, as I commanded you, and then you can eat as much as you want. I command, slaughter like I commanded you. You read the whole Chumash to Parshish There's not a single verse that says anywhere how to slaughter and even to slaughter a regular, a regular uh, animal that you're using for yourself. Even sacrifice doesn't say how to slaughter. Kasher What is this? When did I command you? Ah, first of all, even without it, I wouldn't have an explanation. But it says clearly there's a commandment. This is not written. This is part of the oral tradition. The same, I could go through 613, but I don't want to stand here and go through 613. But it's true. It says you're not allowed to do work on Shabbos. And what is that supposed to mean? You're not allowed to work on Shabbos. So I would say you're not allowed to schlep a couch from one side of the house to the other side of the house. It turns out it's not what God meant. You could schlep as many couches as you want. Maybe a good idea. So what does it mean, don't do work on Shabbos? I'm supposed to know 39 types of work. And then you tell me for seven days I have to sit in a, in a sukkah. What does that mean, sit in a sukkah? Can I sit on my porch? 
Can I put up a hut of plastic? Can I sit in the park? What does it mean sit in a sukkah? How do you make a sukkah? Walls, no walls, a roof, no walls. Don't put on shatnas. Don't dress with shatnas. What is shatnas? I don't know. You need an oral commentary. It's impossible. If not, you're just making a mockery. God is coming. I'm giving you a Torah. I'm giving you a constitution. You give me a text. I know it's real. And I don't understand a single word. The best is it comes sukkahs and you tell me you have to take on the first day pre eats hodor. A beautiful fruit. And what is that supposed to mean? A beautiful fruit. I'm supposed to guess that the beautiful fruit is the citron, not the lemon, not the watermelon, not the pumpkin, not the peach, not the kiwi, not the papaya. It's also a nice fruit. Not the grape, not the cherry, but the estric. Anafates of us means a braided branch. And I'm supposed to know it is the hadas. It tells me to get married. If you get married, a man takes a wife. How exactly do you take a wife? You take her shopping, I get that. You take her for Tiffany, I get that. Figure that out. Take a wife. Somebody wants to get divorced, you give her a book that cuts off. Really, what does that mean? You write on the book, cut off. You write her a novel. What do you do exactly? Say for Christmas. So it's very obvious for anybody with an open mind that the text came with a commentary, with an explanation. Every single word, every single mitzvah. It really goes much deeper than this. And here I use an insight from Rabbi Shamshin Rafal Hirsch, who passed away in the 1880s, Rabbi of Frankfurt am Main in Germany, in his commentary on Chumash, in the beginning of Parshish Mishpatim. I'm going to use his illustration, although a little different, I'm going to use it in my own words. Imagine you're sitting at a lecture, without names, you're sitting at a lecture of a teacher you really love and cherish, a wonderful teacher. And the lecture goes on for three and a half hours. And you want to listen, but you want to remember. So what do you do? You take notes. But you can't write down word for word, because if you write down word for word, you will lose the entire rhythm and the continuation of the lecture. So you write down what we call shorthand. You hear an idea, and in three words you capture the idea. You hear a story, and you write the story in three words. You make a big three question marks, or four exclamation points, Right? To know this was a powerful idea. And so in a half a page, you have the three, four hour lecture. You come home and you tell your spouse, tonight's Shia, tonight's lecture, today's Shia, whatever it is, whoever it is, was unbelievable. So your husband says, really, tell me? I don't remember, but it was unbelievable. Do you have notes? Of course I have notes. Can I see the notes? He looks at the notes. He says, this is unbelievable. Nine question marks, three exclamation points. Come on, what's this? This is, this is ridiculous, this is absurd, it doesn't make sense. So what do you tell him? You had to be there. If you were there and then you would read the notes, you would get it. In other words, the notes are not the lecture. The lecture was the lecture. The notes was simply a tool for me to remember what was said verbally. So when I go back to the notes, I could see in the notes the entire lecture. And a good writer, a great shorthand writer, knows how to compress elaborate, profound ideas in short words. 
if you really want to understand what Chumash is, that is what Chumash is. Moshe Rabbeinu lectured to the Jewish people every day, or almost every day. And the Gemara in Erev and Afnon Dalet gives us the whole system how he lectured. He lectured his brother, he lectured his nephews, he lectured the elders, he lectured all the Jews. He gave four lectures a day. That must have been exhausting. And there was always, you know, Kairach in the back who's saying it doesn't make sense. But Moshe gave, I don't know, every day, but every idea he lectured. Moshe gave a lecture. And then at the end of a lecture, you know what he did? He gave them a sentence, which we call a posik, that had in it a six-hour lecture, a seven-hour lecture. Of course, the brilliance of these notes were, it wasn't from the audience, it was from the author. And therefore, the notes are so meticulous that the six-hour conversation is contained in the sentence. And that's what much of the Talmud does. What does the Gemara do? Anybody who learns Gemara, this is what the Gemara does. The Gemara shows the six hours of lectures in the text. Look, here he put a vav, here he didn't put a vav. Here he added an extra word, there he didn't add this word. Here he uses this phrase, there he changes this phrase. This is superfluous, this is unnecessary, this is a unique explanation. Much of the Talmud is showing the oral commentary, how it's all there in the text, brilliantly concise. Now, when you read Chumash, you can see it. Read Parshas Mishpatim. Without commentary. And I'm very serious. You start reading what's happening there. First, you tell me that if you strike somebody willingly, you don't kill them, you got to pay the medical expenses. And disability. A verse later, a few verses later, you tell me you got to knock out the guy's eye. So you have a major contradiction. This is what we discussed last Sunday, eye for an eye. I'm just giving one example from hundreds and thousands of examples. Now, in this commentary, there was never an argument. There will never be an argument. You ask me in your email, the rabbis keep on arguing. Let's qualify. In this commentary, there was never an argument. There was not a single Jew, Rabbi Oleiman, whoever came to, came to Shul on Sukkot with an orange. And he said, why? He said, why? He said, creates hadar. Nobody. Throughout all of the generations. There was not one Jewish rabbi or court who ever said, when Moshe says an eye for an eye, it means an eye for an eye. You knock out a guy's eye if he by mistake or willingly knocked out somebody else's eye, Khalila. Nobody ever said this. Maybe they forgot, they forgot the tradition. But in this commentary, there can't be an argument. Why can't there be an argument? Because the same God who gave the text gave the explanation of the text of 613 mitzvahs. Where could there be an argument? There could be an argument. How to see this in the text? You'll open up a Gemara Sukkah Daflam and Hayam Aleph. And the Gemara will ask, how do you know that creates Hodder is Esrik? Right? What type of question is this? They didn't go to Shul on Sukkahs? Their fathers didn't go to Shul? Their Zaydas didn't go to Shul? We today have the coins of Bar Koichva. It's interesting, for many generations, people thought that the Bar Koichva story was a myth. So now it's a the myth. With archaeology, they used to also say that all the biblical kings were myths. David was a myth, Shlomo was a myth, Chizkiah was a myth. Everything is a myth. Everything is a myth. Today, each year, suddenly there's a new discovery. I saw a headline the other day, David HaMelech actually lived. 
Okay, I'm glad that when I say David Melech Yisrael Chai Vekayam, I'm not talking about a delusional creature. They discovered that David lived. So they discovered Yigal Yadin, who was a great archaeologist, he discovered the caves of Bar Kaichva. It was a very interesting discovery. Fascinating discovery in the 1960s. They discovered coins that Bar Kaichva minted because he was a king. For a few years he was the king. Rabbi Kiva said, uh, Rabbi Kiva thought he was Mashiach, right? Dein Malka Mashiacha. Dorach Kaichav Miyakov. So I saw, I, I saw one of the coins when I was at Yisrael. So you have there the image of the Dalad Minim. And he writes a letter, he says, you're coming for sukkahs, bring my soldiers, a lulav and an esuk. There was no question. So what is the Gemara asking? So the Gemara gives four, I think, four different opinions. How you know it's an esuk from the text. Priates hadar. One is priates tam shava. It's a tree that the bark and the fruit have an identical taste. It's a fruit that lives on the tree throughout the, all the seasons, unlike other fruits that become ripe and either they, they fall off, thank you, they fall off, they dry up. And there's other, there's other explanations there in the Gemara. I'm just bringing up one. There's no argument what it means. There's an argument. When, Mo, when, when Moshe used these words, creates Hadar, we're, we're in this text that you have the Esrik. There, there, there is an argument. In, in Perik HaChoyvel and Babakama Daf Gimel, there's nine views, nine views, how to look at the words Ayin Tachas Ayin, an eye for an eye, and see in those words, in those verses, the meaning that it's not the physical, amputate, a physical taking out of the person's eye, but it means a monetary, a monetary compensation. Now you'll ask the obvious question. God was missing ink. Moshe was stingy. He couldn't write it. Enough with commentaries. Don't give me your shiurim. Write it down. You have a constitution. Tell me what you want. I have to now rely on an oral tradition. No, it didn't work that way. The text is here. The tradition was oral and Moshe taught it and passed it on. Why was it not written? Not only was it not written, sometimes it's almost like a, a complicated game. The text will be almost opposite of what you want. You start counting, put your cell phones on vibrate. You start counting the day after Shabbos. The tradition says, doesn't mean after, it's not Sunday, it means after Yom Tov, and there's a huge debate in Mesech Menachis between the Sadducees who don't believe in this oral commentary. And the Chazal, they say you always start counting on Sunday, you start counting the Emer on Sunday. Lashes, 40 lashes in Parshish Kiseitse. Ayin tachas ayin, it's distorted. Not only does it not say, sometimes it's unclear. Sometimes it's almost contradictory. So it's extremely strange why did this happen. It goes even more. It's even more dramatic. Some of you will be learning this in a few days. The Gemara says in Gitten, Tav Samach, and it's derived from Chumash, Dvarim Shebaal Peh, Iyater The oral tradition was not allowed to be written. Moshe was not allowed to transcribe it. You couldn't teach it from text. It had to be transmitted orally from Moshe to his disciples and from his disciples to their disciples throughout the generations. Until one man made a revolution, we'll see. There's a few different reasons given for this. 
I'm going to go through some of them very briefly. Number one, it's impossible. It's impossible to write down all of the commentary and explanation. It simply becomes too elaborate and too long. So there's always going to be something that needs commentary. That still doesn't cut it. Number two, text is easier to distort. Commentary, you could be more specific and more clear. Besides that, there are people who can't always learn from text. There are people who need to listen. That's another factor. Another important factor. If everything was written down on the text, the Jewish people wouldn't feel the responsibility of Messiah. If you know that you're sitting at a shiur of your Rebbe, and if you don't listen, it's going to be forgotten for the generations to come, it's a different type of listening. If it's just a text, eh, I'm not coming today, I have the flu. I'll read it, I'll catch up on it. There was a, an urgency in the transmission of Judaism, because if you missed the shear, it was all over. There was a hypersensitivity, uh, a, a sense of duty, a sense of responsibility. That was incredible. Another element, there's a certain vibrancy, a life, that's given over only through live communication. Text doesn't have it. Even the holiest text ultimately lacks the vitality, the life that comes about when the teacher actively engages with the students so that the bulk of Judaism was transmitted through living people, living organisms, talking, communicating, debating, answering. It gave it a chius. The learning of Torah was full of life. It was full of vibrancy. It wasn't just studying a text that had everything there. But the very, very meaning of the text had to be transmitted through people that gave it another life. Another major component was it gave people the sense of Maimed Har Sinai all over again, the sense of tradition. Meaning, I'm not just reading a text. I'm listening to the text because I can't understand it without a teach, from a teacher who heard it from his teacher, from his teacher, from his teacher, till Moshe Rabbeinu, that generation. That's the power of the tradition. That's the power of Messiah. If you think about it, almost everybody in this room as a child, you knew somebody who's 80 years old, 90 years old, maybe even close to 100 years old. That person knew somebody who was 70, 80, 90. So how many people, I saw a person who saw a person who saw another person, how many people do I have to go back to go back to Maimon Harsina? You know how many people? 40. It's not a lot. 40 people. That's it. 40, 50 people. You think I'm crazy, right? But that's how it is. You make the cheshmer in 3,000 years. I saw somebody who was born 1890. I knew who he was. If he saw somebody who was born 80 years earlier, 90 years earlier, and so it goes back. You want to do 50 people. But this is the power of tradition. And in learning, this made it not only alive, but it gave the students the immediate, intimate experience of, of Torah. Besides all of this, this is what distinguishes the Jewish people's relationship to Torah that the non-Jewish world doesn't have. They have the text. They don't have the oral commentary. On the other hand, if you would only have the oral commentary without the written text, then it could be like, you know, the game, what do they call it, telephone or Chinese whispers. You ever do that game when you're bored? I whisper banana in your ear. 
and you whisper it to somebody else, and he to somebody else, and then by the time person number 30 says the word, it's Band-Aid. It's not banana anymore. And it's pretty humorous. That would have happened with the oral tradition too. People make mistakes, but we always have the text to come back to. When you have telephone, but you have the text, the Torah Shabbat to come back to. And there's a relationship between the two because all of the oral traditions can be found in the text. Even if there's an argument sometimes, how? That retains the integrity of these laws of Yiddishkeit, the 613 mitzvahs, that unique combination between the written text and the oral tradition. Let's see how all of this is summed up in the words of the Rambam. In the introduction of the Rambam to Mishnah Torah, your third source, all mitzvahs that were given to Moshe were given with commentary. Every mitzvah given to Moshe was given with a commentary. There's Torah and there's mitzvah. And the Rambam continues. The text of Torah Moshe wrote before he died in his handwriting. He gave a book to each tribe. A Sefer Torah. And one Sefer Torah he put into the ark to remain there and he brings the Pasuk. The commentary he wouldn't write. He communicated it to the elders, to the Yeshua, to all other Jews. Everything that I command you, you should do. What is this? What I command you, the oral commentary. That's why it's called the Torah that's given over from the mouth, from the oral tradition. Number two is what we call halacha l'moyesha Sinai. It's not in the text, but these are oral laws that Moshe Rabbeinu gave over to explain the mitzvahs. For example, tefillin has to be black. The boxes of tefillin have to be square. There's a concept called lovud. Your sukkah walls don't come down all the way, but the space is less than three handbreadth, three tefachim. It's as though the space is not there. It says you have to eat matzah. How much matzah do you have to eat on Pesach? Kazayis, the size of an olive. It says don't eat pig meat, don't eat nevela, don't eat trefa. What is the prohibition with a punishment? Kazayis. This doesn't say, you won't find it in the text. You won't even find a hint in the text. This is what we call halacha l'moshe misinai. Moshe gave over traditions orally to explain certain, certain mitzvahs. Here was the revolutionary moment in Jewish history. This tradition goes on for hundreds of years. From the days of Moshe Rabbeinu, 400 years later they build a Beis Hamikdash, 400 years later it's destroyed. A second Beis Hamikdash is built almost 2,000 years after Moshe Rabbeinu. In the year 150 after the Common Era, a man, Rebbe, Rebbe Yehuda HaNasi, Rabbeinu HaKadosh, decides to violate, so to speak, the halacha, and transcribe all of the oral traditions on paper. This is what we call Shisha Sidre Mishnah. Why does he do it? For a very simple reason. Even though it took a lot of courage, he understood for this system to succeed and flourish is when the Jewish people are living together in serenity and prosperity, where students sit by the teachers for years, there's a living link, a living legacy, a living tradition. It can happen successfully. In his days, 
150 after the common era, one century after the destruction of the second base Amigdash, close to two millennia after Maimon Harsinai, Rebbe saw that it's getting darker and darker. The dispersion was beginning to envelop the entire Jewish world. He realized the Jews will not have that same luxury that they would need in order to carry on this tradition successfully, and therefore it might be forgotten. So he takes all of the oral explanations that Moshe gives over, and he puts it down in writing, which we call the Mishnayis, but in this book he writes down one more thing. And this is the third component of Tayyar Shabalpa, and that is where we don't talk about that which is received, but that which is derived. The text doesn't talk about every circumstance that will ever occur. There are new circumstances that happen. And the question is, what does the Torah want? What does God want? New situations that come up that were not addressed in the text? Or details or nuances that weren't addressed in the text? What do you do now? So for example, in Parshish Mishpatim it says, what's the law? With a custodian who does it for free. A custodian who gets paid. A borrower. doesn't say a renter. What's the halacha by a renter? He doesn't say, what are they supposed to do now? What are they supposed to do? Moshe didn't say it orally, and it's not found in the text. We know what an esrig is, but what disqualifies an esrig? There's a hole in the esrig. It perforates part of the esrig, not through and through. Is it kosher or not? Moshe told us that you're not allowed to carry on Shabbos from a public domain and a private domain. But what makes a private domain? Two walls, three walls, four walls, one wall. What makes a private domain? Or the famous, just to give an example, but Metziah, there's a famous question, right? We know there's a mitzvah to love your fellow Jew. There's a mitzvah, you're not allowed to stand by somebody else's blood. You have to save a person's life if you can. But what happens if two people are traveling in the desert and one of them loses his canteen of water and there's one canteen of water and if the man is going to share it, they'll both die. He only has enough water for himself. Does he have to share it? Or does he not have to share it? This is a new circle. They didn't have this problem in the desert. But now they might have this issue. They come, what's the law? What do you do now? What do you do now? And there's hundreds and thousands of possible scenarios, even more. So here, you have to look in the text. You have to apply the text or the commentary of Moshe Rabbeinu or use your logic. Here is the problem. It's free for all. Everybody could say what they want. I don't have to tell you that two people could see the same text. And everybody says what they want, right? You know the story. The rabbi came into his shul and he calls over the young chevra and he says, I have to give you a lecture about drinking. They used to hang out at the Kiddush club. In fact, many of them were JFKs. They came just for Kiddush. So the rabbi turns to them and he says, you guys can't drink. You got to get rid of this l'chayim. And he says, he'll illustrate it. Right? He takes a bottle of water and a bar- barrel of vodka puts in two worms. The worm in the bottle of water is swimming around, Givaldic. The worm in the vodka shrivels up and dies. The rabbi says, you see? You see? What is the lesson you take out of this? So the alcoholic in the group says, the lesson you take out of this experiment is that if you drink enough, you'll never have worms. You'll be free of worms, just don't stop drinking, right? So any text lends itself to almost, to almost anything. You can twist whatever you want. Here we come to another fascinating component of Tayyar Shabal Peh. We say it every morning, Rabbi Shmuel Oimer, 
Now children grow up with this, and you'll go over to an ordinary 50-year-old man and say, could you explain to me what these 13 mumbo-jumbo things are? What's the difference between binyanov mishnek suvim or, right? The main thing he's waiting for is Let's get it over with. But we say it every morning. You know why we say it every morning? Because you can't be a Jew without understanding this. Because Moshe Rabbeinu gave the Jews a formula, 13 formulas, how you can interpret and apply this text to every conceivable situation. With these with these laws, with these formulas, you can apply the text to all new situations that will emerge or other halachas that were not discussed. And thus, many of the arguments in the Mishnah and in the Gemara are exactly about this. So for example, we know what a sukkah is, Moshe told us, but what about the height of a sukkah? Sukkah how high? Can the schach be 20 feet high? Can it be 50 feet high? There's an argument between Rabbi Yehud and the sages. Why? So the Gemara will explain. They were arguing about how to understand the verses about sukkah. So you'll have, and that's one type of argument, logic, how to understand the text, using the 13 formulas. Now most, they don't argue. Most things they don't argue. Many of, we think they are, most of the halachas, they applied many, many texts to new laws, to new situations. Those that they argue, or don't argue, were all recorded in the Mishnayis, and then after that, in the Gemara. The Mishnayis was written in 150. The Gemara, the Talmud Bavli, was sealed approximately the year 430, 300 years later, by Ravina and Rabashi. So you have five generations of Tanoim, seven, eight generations of Amairoyim, these are the Chachmei HaMishnavah Gemara, who are doing three things. Number one, they're transmitting the oral commentary of Moshe. Number two, they're transmitting halacha l'moshem in Sinai. Number three, they are applying the text to every possible new law and situation. Sometimes they're arguing about something, sometimes they're not. Rabbi Yehuda will write it all down in the Mishnah, all three, including the later arguments and later traditions which will be written down in the, in the Gemara. Now I'm not going to go and now what Kalvah Chaim is, what Gzair Shava was, what Binyan of Mikasav Echad is. But these are all formulas. How to interpret it. And sometimes they'll argue, does it apply, does it not apply? Let's just take the first one, Kalvah What does Kalvah mean? Light and heavy. What is that? It goes like this. Pretty simple. If a child can lift up, if a child can lift up this brick... So certainly, a muscular fellow can lift up this brick. Ma'adach, this little child who's weak, whose cow can lift it up, certainly this big strong fellow can lift it up. So what would that mean in halacha? The Torah tells us that a shaymer sachar, a custodian who gets paid, if it gets stolen, he's responsible. If it gets lost, he's responsible. That's why you're paying him. However, if there's an armed robbery, or if the animal just dies, and it's not his fault, then he's not responsible. The Torah says a shayel, a borrower, is responsible even for that, for armed robbery. If it just dies, he's responsible for everything. Because he's a borrower. He, just, he, paid, he paid nothing, he's just using it. The Torah doesn't say, does a borrower have to pay if it gets stolen? 
So what do we do? Kal If a shayim is sacha, somebody who gets paid to guard it and is not allowed to use it, the Torah says he's responsible for theft, even though he's not responsible for armed robbery or unavoidable, unavoidable tragedy. A borrower who is responsible for that is certainly responsible for Geneva. That's a classic kal Sometimes another sage will say, no, this is a kal with a pircha. This doesn't work. You can refute it. For example... You tell me if a child can lift up this, this, this brick, certainly a muscular fellow can lift up this brick. One second. But this guy had a heart attack yesterday. He's unconscious in the hospital. Oh, that's called a percha. It's not so simple. He's a chaymi. He's big and muscular. But the poor guy is sick. <laughs> right? This is what happens. That's why the Gemara will often have an expression. One tana tells another tana, Im Im ladin if the law you're telling me is a tradition from the oral commentary of Moshe Rabbeinu, I'm good. Imladin. If you're deriving it based on the formulas that Moshe Rabbeinu gave, Yashuva, I can refute it. Here, it's a combination between the formulas and our logic. We have to apply our logic. I say, this doesn't apply to this situation. This is not a chaymer. This is maybe a kal, etc., etc. Here there are many, many Arguments between the Tanoim and later between the Amoyroyim. So now we have a problem. How do you decide? The oral commentary of Moshe, there's no argument. Maybe only how to find it in the text. Halacha l'Moshe Misinai, there's no argument. But when you have to apply the text to new laws, or new circumstances, what do you do now? So you have huge arguments. So how do you find out the truth? Everybody says, this is what God wants. So what happens now? So let us now see the two sources. This too, Moshe Rabbeinu addresses in the Torah. Says the Medrash Tehillim Yudbeis. It's a fascinating Medrash. Amar Rabbiana, Rabbiana said, the words of Torah were not given in a fixed form. Listen to this. Every word that Hashem told Moshe, He also told Moshe 49 ways how you could say it's impure and 49 ways how you could say that this will be pure. In other words, He would discuss 49 different situations and show 49 arguments for this side and 49 arguments for this side. Or one new situation, but show 49 arguments for each position. We're stuck. There's no way to clarify the law. There's a Pasuk in Parshish Mishpatim. You know the text. Come on, Moshe. You weren't listening. Halacha follows majority. The majority says it's impure, it's impure. The majority says it's pure, it's pure. Comes the Rambam and Hilchis Mamnim Peyre Caliph and says, Bezdin Hagodl Shabirushalayim Haim Ikir Tereshabal Pet. The Bezdin Hagodl, which means the Supreme Jewish Court of 71 members that already began in the generation of Moshe Rabbeinu. He appointed 70 members and he was the, the one on the top. And this continues in each generation. There's a Supreme Court. They embody the oral tradition. They are the pillar 
of instruction. From them, law goes out to the entire Jewish people. On them, the Torah says in Shoftim Shenemar Al Pia Torah Asher Yeruchal Amishpat Asher Yomer Luchatasa Zu Mitzvus Asay to follow their their verdict. V'chol hamamim b'Moshe Rabbeinu b'Torosi Chayiv Lismoich Maisa Hadas Aleim Uli Shoyin Aleim. Fascinating words. Anybody who accepts Moshe and his Torah is automatically obligated to rely on them. Why? If not, you have a document and you're making a litzonis for me. You're mocking me. I can't do anything with it. I need an oral tradition. I need halacha l'moshe misinai. And I have a bunch of laws that I don't see in the text. Moshe never told me. A bunch of questions, a bunch of scenarios. The first Mishnah of Masech, the first opening of Mishnah. From when do you reach Shema at night? I know you have to reach Shema at night, but when? So the Mishnah says, from nightfall. Till when? Ah. One Tana says one thing, right? Chachabim Oimrim, at Chatzois till midnight, Reb Namli Aloimer, till dawn break, at Sheyalam Nashachar. And then we have a story about his kids going to a wedding. Right away, what happened? What, 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 what did Moshe say? He didn't say. He said, Beshach Becha. You gotta do Krishna when you're going to sleep. What does it mean go to sleep? You go to sleep at midnight, he's already sleeping three hours, even when he's here, he's sleeping. Another guy doesn't sleep. He's at the wedding. The mitzvah town starts at 3 o'clock in the morning. The Gemara says they're arguing about Meshach Becha. Moshe didn't say. So they argue. So what's the halacha? What's the halacha? Rabbi Lezer was a great man. Rabbi Gamliel was a great man. The same God says. It's legitimate. I'm the one who said there's this way, that way, that way, that way. 49 positions. But I also said, I said my will in practicality is to follow the majority. True. Each position is important. Each position is valuable. Each position is divine. The Gemara says, Why? It's like notes of a song. Each note is inherent to the melody. Each perspective has truth in it. The same God. Judaism doesn't believe everything is the same. There's a lot of perspective and each perspective is true. Each perspective has a truth, has legitimacy to it. When it comes to the verdict, halacha I can only follow one way. Here I follow, here I follow the majority. So the same God who gives the Torah put this into the system. And what does it take to be in the Sanhedrin? You can't just anybody becomes the one who transmits this. Chazal tells the Ramam says in Hilchas Sanhedrin all the conditions. Who did you appoint as a member of such a court? The Rambam says seven criteria. Number one, the man has to be wise, a great scholar, humble, a person who loves truth. You ever heard that concept? The Rambam says a person who's not too crazy about money. Too crazy about money. He says even his own. <laughs> even legitimate money. Even if He's not too crazy. A person who's ready to stand up to injustice and corruption. A person who loves people and is loved by people. A person who has courage. A person who loves justice. A person who has a good name. A person who appreciates people. A person who is in pursuit of truth. He goes all, and humility. It's not simple. Because these people are representing what's going to be the whole integrity of Torah. 
But if one of them violates, there's no hefkeris here. If somebody says, I don't follow the formula, I'm just in a mood, I want to, I want to interpret the halacha this way, they immediately delegitimize themselves. There's a fascinating, there's a fascinating uh, mission at the end of Masech Uktsin, the last mission of the whole Mishnah. It says, Hashem did not find for the Jewish people a vessel that contains blessing, only peace. Now you tell me, this is not humorous? This is the last Mishnah of Shisha Sidri Mishnah. You will be hard-pressed to find a single Mishnah in the hundreds of chapters that's not filled with arguments. From the first Mishnah in Brachis all the way down to Uktsin, they're fighting non-stop. And serious fights. You have in Zvachim a Perik where there's no fights. And that's the chapter we say before davening. Because it's the only Perik where nobody's arguing. So now you finish hundreds of chapters of fighting and you say, by the way, Hashem found one keli that's full of blessing, Shalom. It's like a guy asked his friend, why is there no humor in davening? He said, there is. Really? What, 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 what is this? Are you joking? You just, you're finishing the mission. There's a whole, this whole book wouldn't exist if everybody was not debating. But Rabbi Yehuda chose to finish the Mishnah with this. With, finish Mishnahis with this. Because he's trying to show something. That all these debates don't compromise peace. Because real peace is not negating another person's view. Real peace is appreciating the other view and growing from the divergent views. There was a couple that once celebrated their 50th anniversary. So uh, they, asked, they asked the husband, how do you have such good shalom bias? Like, how is there so much peace in the home? So he said, during our honeymoon, we went to the Grand Canyon. So you know, you go on the mules, and the mules start taking you down the, the, the canyon. So one of the mules slipped. So my wife is a real southerner. She, uh, she tells the mule, strike one. A few minutes later, the mule slips again. She tells the mule, strike two. A few minutes later, the mule slips again. She says, strike three. She takes out her handgun and shoots the mule in the head. The mule is dead. So I, her husband, I turn to her, I say, what are you doing? It slipped, so, so you kill it? She says, strike one. <laughs> so, uh, so I learned to be quiet for 50 years, right? I learned to be quiet for 50 years. That's not called shalom. That's not called peace. <laughs> I silence opposition. I didn't create peace. When was Torah given? On the third month. The Gemara says in Shabbos, Yarchit lisai, la'amet lisai, biyoymet lisai, orient lisai. On the third month, seven, after three days of preparation, to a nation made up of three koinim levim Yisraelim, a book comprised of three Torah nevim and ksuvim. Why three? Peace is not one. I destroy that position. Of course there's peace. Like the t-shirt, I'm very easy to get along with once you learn to worship me. That's not peace. Two represents division. Three is where you can take two divergent views and you could find synthesis, you can find integration. Hashem says, You grow from different views. You grow from different experiences. Everybody expresses another truth. 
and it allows you to understand the truth in a much deeper way. It's a fascinating halach, unbelievable halach in Mesech to Sanhedrin, the Rambam brings it. Sanhedrin shepaschu kulam lechayva, Somebody does a sin, and the whole Sanhedrin open up, and they unanimously declare that he's guilty. So he's exempt. People used to laugh. If 70 members say he's guilty and one say he's innocent, you kill him. If 71 say he's guilty, then you let him go. Makes sense? The Medrash Shmuel says, Sanhedrin You know what the problem is? The problem is that they all immediately declared him guilty. Nobody gave another perspective. And when you don't hear an opposite perspective, you're never sure that your perspective is coming from broad-mindedness, it could be coming from narrow-mindedness. So when somebody disagrees with you, you need to be grateful to them because they challenge your position, they allow you to crystallize to yourself the authenticity of what you're saying. Halacha will not recognize the truth of the Sanhedrin if they immediately all said the same thing? Argue. Somebody could say something. Somebody could find some, just some, some, give him some benefit of the doubt. His mother was an alcoholic, his father was a meshugan or whatever. But the point is, it was paschu kulam lechayva. So that's, that's the real shalom. You know, you all know the Gemara in Baba Metziah where it's a Dafnun test. This is a classic situation, a classic story that exemplifies this. There's a story about an oven, it's called Tanur Shalachnoi. We all know a vessel could be makabal tumah. The problem here is it's not a regular oven. It's an oven that was made from compartments of, of clay, and then they were joined together through, they were cemented through sand. So Rabbi Eliezer said it's not a real vessel because it's disjointed, and it's just connected together with sand. So therefore it's pure. Chachamim said no, it's a regular oven, and therefore it became impure, if impurity went into it. So there became a major debate. Rebbe Leizer says it doesn't accept impurity. Chacham said it does accept impurity. Rebbe Leizer said, I'm right. The Gemara said in Baba Metziah, Rebbe Leizer showed three supernatural events to demonstrate that he's right, and the sages did not budge. The sages did not budge. They said, you're absolutely wrong. They would not accept what he said. Comes the Gemara, and you have it here, the last source on side one. told them, If the halacha is like me, let heaven prove it. A voice comes out of heaven and says, How are you arguing with Rabbi Eliezer? The halacha is like him always. So who is this voice? A voice from heaven said, Don't argue with Rabbi Eliezer, he's right. Omar Rabbi Yeshua Raglov, his colleague Rabbi Yeshua stood up on his feet for Omar and he said, The Pasik says, Loi Bashamayim, he told it is not in heaven. My Loi Bashamayim, he. What does it mean it's not in heaven? You told us it's Omar Rabbi Yermia Shekvar Nitna Toyra Mehar Sinai, ain't Nanu Mashgichim Babasko Shekvar Kasafta Bar Sinai, Betoyra, Achre Rabbim Lahatas. Once you gave the Toyra Mount Sinai with the text, with the commentary, and you write this Torah, it's not going to change. It says in Torah, it's not going to change. No mitzvah is going to change. You gave the formula how to define your will. We go according to the majority. We don't go according to the heavenly voice. So who is he arguing with? He's like, God, sorry. What's happening here? What was God doing when Rabbi Yeshua says, sorry, God? Hashem was laughing. And he said, 
My children have triumphed over me. My children have triumphed over me. Now, what a Gemara. What is this? What, what's going on here? How Sinai remains the exclusive source of the truth of God's will in this world. Anything that's undermining Maimon Har Sinai, which means the prophecy of Moshe Rabbeinu, which means the text of Torah Shabbat Chamishachum Shatairah, the Jew will not accept. Because Maimon Har Sinai is the moment of immediate revelation with God. You told us what you want, and you said, Don't add, don't subtract. It's one of the 13 principles of faith. The ninth one, Torah now you're telling me there's a heaven, there's a voice, oh God! So now there's a new criteria for truth, voices. We sorry. You, sh- you should have said that. We don't accept this. But now I ask you a question. So why did God do this? Hashem makes a voice, and He says, Haloch is like Rabbi Eliezer. And then you say, Rabbi Shalom, we can't listen. Why are you doing this? What is this, a joke? What's Pshat? Why are you doing this? So the Ben Chai. Rabbeinu Yosef Chaim, the Rav of Baghdad, passed away in 1900. says, you know why I did this? Because this essentially gave empowerment to the Jewish people forever. Hashem knew the Jews are about to withstand the worst pressures in history. Everybody is going to try to claim to them, we heard voices. God said this, God said that. God wants this, God wants this. Times have changed. So Hashem issued forth that voice so they could stand up and say, We have one Torah and one formula how to decide what Torah is. There's no Efkeris. Not even godly, spiritual, mystical voices, even when they're true. This is what allowed the Jewish people, some cipher says, this is the moment that allowed the Jewish people to hold on to Torah and it should never ever change. After so many thousands of years, so much suffering, so much pressure, so much persecution, so many different religions who made it their sole objective to entice the Jews and bring them in. How can they withstand it? Muhammad said he's from God and Christianity. Everybody said God, God. It's a new covenant. They didn't budge. And they died for it. Because of, because, because of, this, uh, because of this principle. But these are, these are the first three components of Torah Shabal Peh. The oral commentary, the halacha l'mayshem Sinai, and number three, that which is derived from the oral commentary, from the text, based on the formulas, all of the new laws, all of the new circumstances, and if there's an argument, you follow the majority, this retained the integrity of the Torah and of the law without the ability for there to be corruption, for there to be real distortion, for there to be a situation in which the truth and the integrity of Torah gets uh, kept up. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. Not in that. Not in something that Moshe gave. Never. Any interpretation in Chumash that he gave, what Pshat is, there's never an argument. For example, Tefillin is black, Tefillin is square, Tefillin you write four parshias. Fill in Shalyad, you have four bottom. Fill in Shalrosh, you have a shin here, a shin there. Nafetz Avis is Hados. Ayin Tachas Ayin doesn't mean the eye, it means money. The order of the parshas, that yeah. Rashi Rabbeinu Tam, yeah. That he didn't say? Yeah, anything. 
it was not clarified the mitzvah itself the mitzvah itself what it means the way he gave it over there's never an argument there could be different details for example what apostles an esrik how high a sukkah could be right they will not argue for example what type of schach what what a sukkah is not that yeah that yeah it wasn't said huh If they had a Messiah, there was no argument. If they didn't have a Messiah, they had a question. This he didn't say. No. If it's something he said, there's not Shaykh an argument in it. Just like they won't argue, right? There's no, no such a thing. Yeah. That, that itself is the claw. Anything, there's no argument. It's because it's clear. Huh? Moshe didn't say. Like this or this. That's a separate question. So that's brought. The answer with Tefillin is that uh, already in the Zman of Moshe there was an argument. Same thing by Shoif. Shvarim and Trua, you mean. Same thing. Some did like this, some did like this. In other words, there was no halacha. Esrig, yeah. That's why there was never a question there. Anafa itself is whatever, there's no argument. That is the clown. That. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By Tchiyas Shoifer, he didn't say what what true is. He didn't have a Messiah in this. Yeah, Hashem didn't say. You could do this, you could do this. What? Which point? That what? Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Maybe he asked, there was no answer. Maybe there had to be an argument. I don't know. But even in his generation, in his generation, there were things they did different ways. Because it was not, it was not clear. Anything that there's no machlaikas whatsoever, this was a messiah. Everything else, there was a machlaikas because there was no tradition. There was no clear tradition. So you can argue how many walls a sukkah has. There's no argument what type of schach. Nobody says you can use for schach edible food. Tomatoes, potatoes. Nobody says you could use for schach something that's not, that's not uh, gidule minars that doesn't grow. Nobody says that. You can't use uh, fabric, right? Wool. No, it was the Messiah. That's why there was no argument. They knew exactly what to do. So there's no argument. What are you going to argue? Just like we know the Torah of was given to Moshe. How do we know that? Same thing. Just like we know, look, we spoke last week, just like we know Torah of was true, because they all accepted and they gave it over to their children, they gave it over to their children with this explanation. The father told his son, it's Sukkot, we're now going to shake an Esrik. How did he know it's an asterisk? He heard from his father, heard from Moshe, heard from his Zayda, Zayda. The same... Okay, so you're saying that three million people, again, made a conspiracy and said, we're going to say it's an asterisk. Fine, I can't argue with you. But Lepel, they all agreed. So you could say they all agreed, Stam, even though it was a Meshagas to agree. 
right? Because they never agree with anything. <laughs> but they, they agreed. Or you could say they, they had to agree. There was no argument. Wherever they had a Shiloh, they had a Shiloh.
This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.